I am so honored, honored to be able to stand beside Bob, first of all. Such a privilege. And I feel so honored to be asked to bring to you God's Word this evening and on two other occasions during this week. I, I want to tell you that when I received the invitation uh, to speak into the situation in Ireland as to what God might be saying to us in this year of commemoration, as we remember the Battle of Somme and the 1916 uprising, two seminal moments in terms of the history of this nation, I was fearful and I wondered why they did not send me a flak jacket with the invitation. <laughs> this is difficult, it is demanding, and I ask you that you pray for me. My concern is that we might learn how to remember rightly. When you come to an event like this, you gather with your friends, and one of the first things you will say to them, do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember when there was a Baptist coup at New Horizon? I say that because normally there's just sprinklings. You were in seats, because it rains a lot here, there's sprinklings, there's a few pourings, and stewards are running around to get the seats ready for you, but the year I remember was when the heavens opened. It was like the days of Noah, and immersion was not an option. It was obligatory. <laughs> These are special moments when we come together. I notice there's so many students here, and I know you've all played pranks. I, I must tell you, when I went to university for the first time, I came as a middle-class, naive young student from the Malone Road in Belfast, and when I went to college, I shared a room with a guy who was streetwise street from the Crumlin Road in Belfast. <laughs> and I remember one day I was really struggling with this enormous stomach problem that I had. And, and I said to him, what should I do? And he said, what you need is Epsom salts. And I said, that's fine. So I went off and bought a box of Epsom salts. And I said to him, how much should I take? And he said, the entire box. <laughs> Which I did. <laughs> well, you can, you can just imagine the consequences. The little house in the prairie had a permanent reserve sticker on it. Well, I feel in this year of commemoration, when this guy who has felt for all these years that he was anonymous, that I should tell you... Who is responsible for this uh, abuse of not just my body, but of my dignity? <laughs> he was the former minister, now retired, of Crumlin Presbyterian Church, former president of the Irish Association, blogger, author, former, well, leading Orangeman, I should say, Brian Kenaway. We all know who you are. I feel so much better. <laughs> it, is, it is fun to remember. But there are moments when it is special to remember on your own in the quietness of your bedroom. I, I found this lovely quote from Frederick Bruckner who just writes delightfully. He said, but there is a deeper need. And that is a need, not all the time surely, but from time to time to enter that still room within us all, where the past lives on as part of the present, 
where the dead are alive again, where we are most alive ourselves to turnings and to where our journeys have brought us. The name of the room is Remember. The room where with patience, with charity, with quietness of heart, we remember consciously to remember the lives we have lived. I do have those special memories. I remember my first date with Karis, who is now my wife. It was a blind date. My roommate was going with his girl. She was sharing, a, you know, an apartment with Karis, and they thought they'd make it a foursome. And off I went. I would love to tell you that it was for Karis love at first sight. It was not. <laughs> she thought I wore weird clothes. She'd never met anyone who talked so much. And she described me as bumptious, whatever that means. I had to woo her, which, of course, I eventually did. In those moments, I remember my dad, those quiet moments. I, my dad had an enormous influence upon my life. He was a very special guy. You see, he had planned to be a missionary. He wanted to go follow the steps of Hudson Taylor and go out with the China Inland Mission, to which he was always committed. He was making his preparations. He had been studying when his father died. Now, now my dad was the eldest of 14, which I thought was pretty good for a Protestant family. <laughs> uh, he was left with the responsibility of caring for his siblings, so he gave up his plans to be a missionary, and he became a butcher and eventually opened his own business. He was outrageous at times. He did have a slight limp because he had a soccer accident or injury early in his life and it became arthritic. And a woman came into the shop one day and said, uh, Mr. Morrow, do you have pig's feet? And he said, no, missus, it's just the way I walk. <laughs> I, I loved my dad. He did the most amazing things as a follower of Christ. He sought to practice grace and to live according to the principles of the king and the kingdom. He had the opportunity, I remember this clearly as a young teenager, to buy, to buy property beside him. And it was a, such a wonderful deal. And he decided not to proceed. And I asked him, how come, Dad? That was a great deal. And he said to me, if I had bought that property, I would have put 12 men out of work. They would be unemployed. How could they provide for their children? In Loyalist Lisbon, my dad employed a Roman Catholic manager. He lost, he lost customers, but he would not budge. This man was the best man for the job. He was the best qualified. Every week, Mother Patrick, who was the mother superior of the presentation convent, uh, would come in and get her meat. My dad stopped everything to be with Mother Patrick. They, they shared so much together. And what amazed me, my father, I suppose, you could have described in his background and his upbringing, he was really quite fundamentalist. He was secretary of the Christian Workers' Union Male Voice Choir. That's his lineage. But I remember him clearly saying to me once at dinner, you know, Trevor, he said, Mother Patrick really loves the Lord. He had this bonding relationship with her. What I reckon is my father planted seeds in my heart that established a pattern for my ministry, which has now, of course, over these years brought me into 
the Irish Republic. He used to sing on Sunday evenings, sitting at the piano. You know, this little old gospel song, Precious Memories, How They Linger, How They Ever Flood My Soul in the Stillness of the Midnight, Precious Sacred Scenes Unfold. Those are special moments. You have them. But there are some here tonight, and the memories you you have are so traumatic, so distressing, that you can barely talk about them. Oh, you have flashbacks at times, and they are unsettling to you. You may have had to seek counseling. In a gathering of this size, there will, of course, be those who have been abused mentally and physically abused. Perhaps their marriages have failed. They may be the products of those sexual abuse. Some of you will have been raped. And it is so distressing, you cannot talk about it. And it's inevitable in such a gathering in Northern Ireland that as a result of what we have euphemistically called the troubles, there are many of you who carry the pain of having lost brothers, fathers, uncles, relations who have been taken from you or have been maimed and injured. And you don't know how to cope with it. There is a mixture of anger and outrage. You you crave for justice and you don't get it. And in terms of trying to make such memories real for you, you you put pressures upon organizations, even like the Stormont Executive, who, whatever they're trying to do, they cannot, they cannot resolve or crack this nut of how to deal with the past. I, I had the honor of, of speaking at the 20th anniversary of the Anna Enniskillen bombing. And I knew at such a gathering I had in front of me folks you know, who had responded differently to that atrocity. There were members, of course, of Gordon Wilson's family who had sought to practice forgiveness. There, there were those who could not forgive, even after 20 years. The pain was so deep, it was so distressing to them, that they couldn't even reach out in such a manner. And there are those present who would not forgive because it was like an insult to their families who had been butchered by such an assault. That's the reality of us, even as followers of Christ. That is our genuine experience because forgiveness, as you know, is one of the most difficult things you will ever be asked to do. And we in Ireland, north and south, we just, we just love to remember the past, don't we? You, you remember about hearing about the British Airways flight that was coming in from London with, with you know, the pilot who had all these terribly sophisticated English voices when they speak. You know? This British Airways pilot, he's flying in and he said, we will be landing in Belfast International in about 15 minutes. The temperature is 17 degrees, you know. Uh, the wind is, you know, 25 knots coming from the west. Um, I just remind you that you need to put back your watches. 300 years, he said. <laughs> we remember, don't we? We remember 1690. We remember 1916. Well, I want to tell you, I was raised in one narrative, and I have lived my entire ministry in another. I use those terms, narrative, carefully. 
We distinguish between a narrative and history in this way. When, uh, when historians are functioning, they're trying to look as objectively as possible to all the evidence, to the extant manuscripts, to, to seek to discern what happened, when it happened, and why it happened. That's what academic historians do. But when you are engaged in communicating narrative, you select material from the past which is important to you in describing who you are and giving you a sense of identity. So on this island, in terms of what we do with the past, is that we have different narratives that we tell, different stories that we communicate. I, I say I was raised in one. Well, I, I come from Lambeg. I was often, say, born in the sound of Lambeg drums. My... my my father, I remember, used to show me pictures of members of our families who, who had died as part of the 36th Ulster Division at the Battle of the Somme. And he was very proud of them. Not, not only because of the sacrifice that they had made, but the sacrifice they had made to preserve the British Union. That's my upbringing. I had thought I'd almost put it aside until something happened to me just a few months ago. It was the 1st of July. It was the date in which we remember the Battle of the Somme. I was driving from Letterkenny to Dunfanaghy for a holiday. And you know that beautiful part of the world you go through the gap? You've been that part? You know where the gap is? And I'm driving through and I'm listening just before the news. And when they decide to commemorate the Battle of the Somme, and what they do is they tell the story. This is an RTE of a man a family from Lisbon, but not just a family from Lisbon, but a family from the Hill Hall Road in Lisbon where my father and his family were raised. These were immediate neighbors of my family, and they had died at the Somme. And in the silence, after the names were mentioned, they, they played that, that wonderful Melody. Some of you remember Pete Seegers wrote it. It was a really anti-war folk song, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? But it was a beautiful arrangement with, with Dolores Keene and Tommy Sands singing. And, and then that haunting line, Where have all the soldiers gone? Gone to graveyards, everyone. When will we ever learn? When will we ever learn? And I discovered, whoops, the tears began to flow. Whatever I'm going to say to you tonight, brothers and sisters, this is the rock from which I have been hewn and the stone from which I have been dug. But I have lived my entire ministry in another narrative. I, I live with men and women, friends, brothers and sisters, who understand the Irish history quite differently than many of you. They perceive themselves of having lived for 800 years under English oppression. For them, whether we like it or not, 1916 and the uprising, which whatever the moral failures surrounding it were, was the opportunity for them to seek some independence and for them freedom. Folks, it is difficult for us. It is difficult to seek to remember, to remember the past. I say I have these two identities. 
But, but we remember also because of the importance of justice, don't we? We want people to remember what happened. It's a matter of justice. I tell you, if you are a Jew, you want to make sure everybody remembers. Never forget. Never forget. Never forget the Holocaust. That atrocity that sought to exterminate the Jewish people. They want their stories told. They want it as a matter of justice. I, Eli Weissel, who is a fabulous writer in the Jewish community, he gave a testimony at the Abarbi trial in 1987. And this is what he said, Justice without memory is incomplete justice, false and unjust. To forget would be an absolute injustice in the same way that Auschwitz was the absolute crime. To forget would be the enemy's final triumph. Even, he says, if full justice could be achieved, it would not be enough. For though justice vindicates, it is unable to bring the dead back to life. Memory does that in a sense. It gives back life to those who are dead because it refuses to let them be effaced from memory as they have been torn from the land of the living. To remember is to deny the perpetrator ultimate triumph. Hence, the obligation to remember always. There is something deep in us that resonates with because of what we have come through on this island. It is why we seek inquiries and commissions and tribunals. It is the pursuit of justice. Well, brothers and sisters, my challenge and what I have wrestled with over these months is, is there a right way to remember for those whose loyalty and love is first and foremost to Christ and to the kingdom of God. If this is our primary identity, how are we as followers of Christ, members of his church in Ireland, to remember? I, I want to tell you I have been greatly helped by a wonderful Croatian theologian who teaches at Yale Divinity School called Miroslav Wolf. Miroslav Wolf has no idea of the impact he has had on the peacemaking process in Northern Ireland. He has no idea. It was his writings that fed organizations like Econi, the Evangelical Contribution on Northern Ireland. And Miroslav Wolf's one of his recent books is called The End of Memory. It is partly autobiographical. It describes his own personal pain as... As, as he had married an American and he was, no, and was studying in Germany. And when he returns to what was the former Yugoslavia, he seeks to do service in the army. But because of who he's married to and because he'd been abroad, they reckon he must be in the CIA. And so what, what he describes is this endless interrogation, the pain, the mental abuse that takes place particularly by a captain called Captain Gorovich. And what this book is about is how can we remember rightly as followers of Christ in terms of such abuse that is so unjust? How can we remember truthfully, he says, because let's remember, when we are abused, we are prone to exaggerate. We want to make the person 
who has done this to us worse even than they are, so we will bear false witness against them. How do we do it truthfully? How do we do it responsibly, he says, so that we do not perpetuate the evil and, and, and keep it moving so that what happens often in the history of nations, of course, is that the abused become the abusers. How do we prevent that? And, and how do we do it peacefully so that it reflects the principles of shalom of the kingdom? Well, what is God saying to us from the scriptures? Well, let me just say to you from the outset that to remember is a key element in the Bible. We are told some 167 times to remember. But there is a special way of remembering that I want to focus on this evening. And, and it is, and I'm going to teach you this word, it's a Hebrew word. It's the word zakar. You can remember by thinking of soccer and putting a Z in front of it. It's a zakar remembering. There's a famous Jewish scholar called Yosef Yerushalmi. And he wrote a book called Jewish History and Jewish Memory. And he said this, only in Israel and nowhere else is the injunction to remember felt as a religious imperative to an entire people. Its reverberations are everywhere, but they reach crescendo in the Deuteronomic history and in the prophets. And he quotes them, remember the days of old, consider the years of ages past, or remember these things, O Jacob, for you, O Israel, are my servant. I have fashioned you, you are my servant, O Israel, never forget me. Or remember what Amalek did to you. And remember that you were a slave in Egypt. He's referring here to these Zakar moments. There are really three elements in these Zakar moments, and I'll do this briefly. One of them is that in terms of the covenant that God has with his people, Israel remembers God who he is and what he has done for them. And at the same time, God remembers the covenant he has made and the promises that he will fulfill for the people that he loves. Of course, it's not an equal covenant relationship. But there are two parties. It's, it's not surprising, therefore, that the scriptures should, should use marriage almost as a model. Well, I want to tell you that, that on the 28th of July, Karis and I were married for 45 years. Woohoo! I have fought the fight and I have kept the faith. <laughs> can, can you imagine that I would have come down for breakfast uh, on that morning and I would have opened my paper and I would have said to Karis, guess what, we are married 45 years today. Is there any more toast? <laughs> and Karis, of course, would have said, oh, Darling, how, how thoughtful of you to remember. If you know Karis, you know that's not what she would have said. What she would have said could not be repeated publicly in such a gathering. Now, what you do in such occasions is, is you go on a date. Well, I, I did better than that, I have to tell you. We had Bucks Fizz for breakfast. Mm -hmm. Well, I thought it would help to, you know, bring north and south together. Orange juice from the north, 
champagne from the south. It was just a wonderful occasion. We, we went off and had a meal. We went off to see the Billy Elliot the musical. But most of our time was spent sharing, sharing our stories, renewing our love, renewing the covenant promises that we had made. So at these Sokar moments, Israel remembers God and God remembers Israel. Israel remembers. They remember who he is. They remember his character. Listen from Isaiah. Remember this. Keep it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things. Those of long ago, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. You see, they remember the covenant with Abraham and the promises. They look up and they see the rainbow and they remember the promise to Noah. But above all, they remember the exodus, the great deliverance of God. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown? They remember, they remember God and they remember his intervention according to his covenant promise. But at the same time, God remembers. This is extraordinary. He remembers his covenant forever. This is the Psalms. The promise he made for a thousand generations. He remembers the covenant he made with Abraham. The oath he swore to Isaac. He remembers his covenant with Noah. I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. He remembers his covenant with Noah, and he remembers the making of his covenant with Abraham. I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Abraham. You see, God remembers, Israel remembers. That's number one. It's relational, you see, a Sokar moment. But the second is that there is something tangible to help you remember. Something you can see, something you can touch, something you can handle at a Sokar moment. That is why Abraham and his child Isaac, they were circumcised so that even as they looked at their bodies, they could remember the covenant. When they saw the rainbow, they remembered the covenant promise, you see. When they saw the 12 stones at the River Jordan that Joshua had placed, it was something tangible, you see. They could see it, and they would remember. And, of course, supremely for the Old Testament people, the exodus, the, the whole element of the bitter herbs, you know, the Passover ceremony, the unleavened bread, the goblets of wine, the Paschal lamb, and for us in the new covenant, water, baptism, bread and wine, the sacraments, it is tangible. Well, we're familiar with this in normal life, are we not? You know, we have birthday parties. We have the cake and the candles. And we sing happy birthday to you, etc., etc. And when it's a marriage, we exchange rings. And we have our 
memorial plaques in our churches and we remember those who had died. I heard once of a mother with a child sitting beside one of those plaques and, and it said on the plaque that people had died in the services and the child said, Mom, did they die in the morning service or in the evening service? But we have something that we preserve as a memorial, something something tangible. That's the second. And here is the third, which is perhaps very difficult for us in the Greco-Roman world of which we are an inheritance. We don't think Hebrew. When we have a soaker moment, like, like communion or like baptism, which is part of our you know, new covenant practice, what we engage in at communion, for example, is we simply recollect that something happened, you know, 2,000 years ago. It's as if it's Remembrance Day or a day of commemoration as we have on the Republic and, and Ravelli sounds, the, you know, the last post and, and, and there's silence for a minute and people bow their heads and they remember something of the past and of people who have died and people think that's what happens at communion. And for most of us at that moment, what we do is we feel first awful. At communion, we feel awful because, you know, all that Jesus has suffered. And then we feel thankful that he did it for us. But let me tell you, folks, if you think Hebrew, you must think much more differently than that. It's not a so-called moment unless you are a participant. Listen from the Talmud. In each and every generation, each person can regard himself as though he has emerged from Egypt. When you eat the bread and drink the cup, you are reestablishing your identity. You are participating in everything that Christ has done for you upon the cross. This is not mere recollection. Well, I say there are these two key moments which is central to God's purposes with regard to the liberation of his people. These are the soaker moments. The exodus and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Passover and I need to be careful what I call this. You know, Some of you call it the breaking of bread or communion or, or the Eucharist. I'm trying to be as ecumenically open as possible here. But you know what I mean. That moment when you celebrate and essentially at their core the Passover and communion are almost identical. Though they are sokar moments because in the Passover the people of God remember that they were slaves. They have been set free and now they are experiencing ultimate redemption. And as they participate in the seder, I'm not sure how many of you attended Noah's seminar today. I'm sure that was worthwhile in understanding the very nature of how Messianic Jews understand the Passover is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. But as a Jew eats and drinks and participates in that liturgy right through to the Haggadah, the telling of the story of the Exodus from Egypt, they reaffirm their identity as the covenant people of God. Well, you come to the Eucharist 
Well, anti-right, anti-right is not always right. But, 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 but when he talks about, when he talks about the Eucharist, the communion Christ established for us, he describes it as what happened on the night of the Passover as the most radical thing that Jesus did prior to his death. You think about that for a moment. For a Jew, the Passover, the most sacred moment in terms of who they are and their identity. And as he comes and to that moment of thanksgiving with a thanksgiving cup, he reaches forward and he takes the bread and the wine. You may or may not be aware that the central moment in terms of the celebration of Eucharist, the celebration rather of, of the Passover before the destruction of Jerusalem was, of course, the Paschal Lamb. The Paschal Lamb was, was sacrificed for the sins of the people who would participate in that celebration. It was then roasted and placed on the table. And that key moment, so that those of the family could share in the offering for the forgiveness of their sins, the flesh was torn apart and given to those who were present. Well, what Christ does is quite staggering. You see, because the lamb is not on the table, the lamb is at the table. So he takes the bread and he breaks it and says, This is my body, which is broken for you. Take, eat. And he takes the cup in the same manner also, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink you all of it, so that as we eat and drink, what are we doing? We are remembering God's covenant and we are asking God to remember the covenant promise that he has made to us. Folks, these Sokar moments are amazing. This is the norm for how to remember. It affects everything for us as kingdom people. It determines our primary identity. All our past is going to be affected by this. It has powerful consequences for us, and I want in these final moments just to mention these three consequences that you and I must grasp if we are to live for Christ in Ireland and to remember rightly. Here is the first that flows from it. We are to remember those times when we were slaves before we were delivered. That's what the Hebrew people were asked to do. Remember that you were slaves. And therefore, it affects how you treat the slaves who are among you. Listen to Deuteronomy. If a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells themselves to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year you must let him go free. And when you release him, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock. And then remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. 
so that when the alien and the stranger and the slave comes among you, you are to receive them because in the Sokar moment, you are to remember that you were once slaves. One of the great parts I remember of my upbringing as a child was listening to testimonies. We don't seem to do this so much in our evangelical communities where people will tell these wonderful stories of how they were brought out of darkness into the light of God. Of, of, of how in their brokenness and pain the Lord intervened and rescued them and redeemed them. Folks, that's what we are to do. When we see people among us that we are naturally alienated from, we are to receive them. How many times, I know in my tradition, when you read that passage in 1 Corinthians 11, about when you're coming to communion, you are to examine yourself and not to eat and drink unworthily. And when you read that, how many times have you thought, you know, what sort of a week have I had? How have I behaved? Have I kicked the dog or kicked the cat? Or what did I do? You know, am I, was I worse this week than I was last week? Folks, I want to tell you that passage has practically nothing to do with subjective analysis. It's got to do with how you treat those who are different from you, who are being left out. The whole thrust of that passage is that at the Agape Feast, where people were bringing food, those who had plenty, the rich and the powerful and the influential, were there early, and they were eating and drinking almost to the point of being utterly inebriated, and the poor were left outside because they were not quite part of that community. And therefore, when it came to the celebration of communion, people were eating and drinking unworthily because they were excluding those people. Let me tell you, poor Michael Jackson, who is the Archbishop of Dublin, is a good man, got himself into serious trouble in Dublin. He had been the Bishop of Clocker. Uh, and when he came to Dublin, he, he, he saw that in a number of the churches in the Dublin and Glendalough diocese, they were growing. And they were growing because people were coming from Roman Catholic background and choosing to make, you know, the Church of Ireland their spiritual home. Uh, but more important, many were coming as immigrants. They were coming from other countries and other nations. They were coming into the Church of Ireland. And what he discovered was that as he met with those in leadership within some of the churches, people were saying to him, well, it's fine to have them, but they're not really one of us. You see what I mean? He called it sectarianism. He had experienced it in Clocker, you see, and he saw it in Dublin. We are to embrace and to welcome those who we naturally feel prejudiced towards because we too were once slaves crying out in our pain and misery. Travelers, migrants, gays, republicans, even loyalists, we feel, well, they're not really one of us. We are to reach out to them because we were once slaves. The implications of our remembering, secondly, is that we are to pursue justice. In remembering, we are to pursue justice. This is what God said to the people of God in the Old Covenant. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out, 
They met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. We are to pursue justice. Brothers and sisters, we worship a just God. There will be justice on the final day. The books will be opened. The innocent, they will be vindicated. And the guilty will be condemned. But what we remember in the Sokar moment of communion is that God in his justice has executed it already in himself. He has borne our judgment the just for the unjust so that we might pursue the righteousness of God. We need to pursue justice. I would love to spend time, I don't, but, but just to share with you for a moment some of the great joys of our evangelical inheritance of brothers and sisters who have fought for justice because of the warrant and witness of the scriptures, of Elizabeth Fry, for example, when she visited prisons, appalled and sought for prison reform. For Keir Hardy, a miner from Scotland who came to faith in Christ and saw the appalling plight in which miners were being treated in a systemic evil of an institution. And he founded, of course, as an evangelical Christian, the trade union movement, or, or William Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery. Today, and one of the reasons I, I wrote that little book, Equal to Rule, is that women around the world are being constantly abused. When, when the group of leaders in the world that were known as the elders, actually, Jimmy Carter, the late Nelson Mandela, Mary Robinson, former Irish president, and others, when they began to analyze what is the greatest social ill facing our culture and society in the world today, it was not, as you might have assumed, economic disparity. It was the abuse of women. How they are being treated around the world. And our neighbors, we, in the past, you know many of them, we treated unjustly. And the victims, the victims of terrorism in this country, it is right that they should seek for justice. We are to remember the Amalekites, says God. And finally, on the basis of this Sokar moment, we are to remember God's love for us and for our enemies. Listen to Paul in Romans. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us 
when we were his enemies. And Christ died for our enemies as he died for us. If we have received such love, we are to love our enemies. I referred earlier to the Enniskillen bombing. You remember the response of Gordon Wilson. He was often misunderstood and and often Christians reacted negatively to his reaction and response. They thought he was offering immediate forgiveness to those who had perpetrated this evil. He did not. If you had listened to him later in his life, he, he said, no, it took him a long time to forgive. What he actually said was, I bear no ill will to those who have done this. I bear no grudge. I don't want any dirty talk, he said. You see, he had experienced God's extraordinary love because he knew he was an enemy for whom Christ died. And so he offered love to those who he was in hostility with. Well, tonight I can't imagine in such a gathering you you, you don't feel real anger towards somebody. Somebody who has stolen something precious to you, something so personal, even in terms of your own identity. Members of your family, people who have abused you, those who have killed and put to death those whom you love. If God in Christ died for you when you were his enemy, he also died for your enemy. And you are to love. I I suppose the ideal response would be at this moment to celebrate communion. It's just not practical. In terms of the logistics, it's not possible. But I do want this to be a Sokar moment for us. I want it to be a moment when we remember and God remembers the covenant, his promises to us. I want it to be a moment when we see something tangible and physical. I I want it to be an occasion, a moment, where we renew our relationship with him that is real and existential. So I'm going to ask you to do something in just a moment. It will not embarrass you, I promise you. I want you now simply to close your eyes. Will you do that, please? Will you close your eyes in an attitude of prayer? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God is in his temple. He has chosen to reveal his presence by his Spirit through his word. What I'd like you to do is simply to take your hands and place them palm down on your knees. Will you do that? Just place your hands, something tangible that you can see. Just place them on your knees.
and remember that you were a slave. Remember how you have been redeemed. Remember the promise that God has made that he would be your God and you would be his people. And ask God to remember. Remember that he has loved you before you were born. That he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. That you are the apple of his eye. That he delights in you. And he sings with ecstasy over you. Because you are his child. Remember, remember what he has done for you to secure your redemption. The enormous cost, so that now you are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Now I invite you just to turn over your hand and face it upwards. So that you might present your body as a living sacrifice to live for the king and for the kingdom to welcome the stranger and to those to whom you feel such prejudice to pursue justice for those who are oppressed and to love your enemy because God in Christ has loved you. Gracious God, we are not locked in our past. We are not what we have done or what others have done to us. We are a people who you have loved from all eternity. We are slaves who have been set free at unimaginable cost. We are the children of the age which is to come. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And the people of God said, Amen.